if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. There are a number of texts in the book of Romans that have been especially used by God in the conversion of important Christian leaders. We talked about in chapter 1 how Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 was instrumental in the conversion of Martin Luther and consequently the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it became his life text. Romans chapter 13 verses 11 through 14 was used to bring Augustine, a great 5th century theologian uh, of the church, to faith in Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 3 verse 25, the verse that we are looking at this morning was used uh, and was instrumental uh, in the life of another uh, influential Christian leader. William Cowper was an 18th century English poet. Uh, he had a miserable childhood. His mother died when he was six years old, and so he was sent off to a boarding school where being small, slight of build, and of a sensitive nature, was mercilessly bullied by the older boys. Cowper struggled through this time, and then in later years went on to law school. He was an excellent student, but uh, terrors overwhelmed him. On at least two occasions, Cowper tried to commit suicide. At last, in the year 1756, the 25-year-old Cowper was committed to a private asylum under the care of a man whose name was Dr. Cotton. 200 years ago, being confined to an asylum meant most of the time receiving the most terrible treatment imaginable. But Cowper's doctor was a devout Christian gentleman, and he treated this distraught young poet with a way, in a way that brought him out of his depression and introduced him to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Cowper was often troubled by his sin. He was frequently known to cry out, My sin, my sin. Oh, for some fountain that could be opened for my cleansing. But he knew of no such fountain. And then under the care of this gentle Christian doctor, Cowper discovered the only fountain that has ever washed away anyone's sin. And some years later, Cowper, influenced by that, wrote these words, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. In an interesting sidelight to that story, exactly a hundred years before that, this same text brought deliverance to a man by the name of John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, a book that has sold more uh, copies than any other book in history except for the Bible. Bunyan's account of his conversion re reads, As I was walking up and down in the house, 
as a man in a most woeful state, the word of God took hold of my heart. And he quotes Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And he said, oh, what a turn it made upon me. It was as if I had awakened from a terrible nightmare. The word propitiation that we find here is an important word. Um, one of my, uh, one of the things that I enjoy doing, besides preaching, is uh, movies. I've always liked movies. And I, I told you last year, I think it was, that, that I even like the Hallmark Christmas movies. Cheesy, dumb, but I like them. You know, but what am I, and, and I also like westerns, war movies. I know that genre's kind of separated, but anyway. But one of my favorite westerns of all time was one that is called The Magnificent Seven. And uh, some of you may be old enough to remember it. You know, if you don't remember, go, go watch it. It's great. But the story of it is there's this Mexican bandit played by Eli Wallach, and he has a, about a 40-man army, and they terrorize this, this small village. The farmers grow their crops, and they begin to bring them in, and in rides this army and steals everything that they have. And this goes on for a while, and so some men of the village go north to hire some men who can protect them against this bandit. And the leader of the group uh, is a man that's simply called Chris, uh, played by Yule Brenner, and his sidekick is Steve McQueen. So anyway, they go and they work with the villagers and they build some walls and they train them. And Wallach and his army comes riding in. And uh, Yule Brenner tells them they can't have the food. And, and, and Wallach says, look, I've, I've got an army to feed through the winter. How am I going to get food for my men? And one of the men says, well, you could grow it yourself. And another one says, Charles Bronson says, or you could work for it. And uh, Wallach says, somehow I don't think you've solved my problem. And Brenner then says, solving your problem is not our line. And then Steve McQueen utters the line of the movie. He says to Wallach, we deal in lead, friend. We deal in lead. Well, as Christians, we deal in words. Words are very important. In our culture today, we're told that these words like propitiation are not vital. You know, nobody understands what they mean, and we should just pass them along. Well, I, I will agree that if you're dealing with unbelievers, okay, they don't particularly need to know a word like propitiation, but believers should. If you are a Christian, you should know that words are important and that this is one of those vital words in the Bible. But few people even understand today what it means or how to respond to the concept. Redemption, we can kind of understand. Uh, it's an image from Christ's work that is uh, brought over from the world of buying and selling. And since we do a lot of both, that is a concept that we can grasp. It's not foreign to us. But propitiation is a word that is drawn from ancient religion. It signifies when the worshiper, what he does when he presents a sacrifice to a deity. It is an atoning sacrifice whereby the wrath of that deity is appeased or turned aside. 
And because the ancient world of sacrifice is so far removed from our experience, many people have no idea as to what this word means. And then you enter into the theological objections to the word. Propitiation presupposes the wrath of God, a wrath that needs to be turned aside, that needs to be satisfied or appeased. Most modern thinkers stop right there because they find that kind of concept highly inappropriate for Christianity. And they say things like, well, we can understand how the idea of propitiation might have been important in a pagan society uh, where God was not known, where he was thought to be vacillating, where he thought he was often thought to be angry. But certainly that's not the God of Christianity. That's not the God of the New Testament. God is not angry. God is love. Uh, and he does not need to be appeased. He, his, uh, uh, the concept of his wrath is foreign to people today. One modern theologian wrote these words, Those who hold to the fire and brimstone school of theology, who revel in ideas such as Christ was made a sacrifice to appease an angry God, or that the cross was a legal transaction in which an innocent victim was made to pay the penalty for the crimes of others, a propitiation of a stern, righteous God finds no support in the writings of Paul. These notions came into Christian theology by way of the legalistic minds of a medieval churchman. They are not biblical Christianity. How extraordinary. So the Bible does not really mean what it says it means. When it says here in verse 25 that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, it doesn't really mean that. Because God is not a God of wrath. Many scholars have suggested over the years that this word propitiation should be replaced by the word expiation. Now expiation means a cancellation of sin. It means to, uh, to uh, wipe sin out. And so that is the translation that is found in, in like the Revised Standard Version and the New, New English versions of the Bible. But it's a wrong translation. The word here in the Greek that is translated propitiation means propitiation. When it, when it comes to the point that we are saying that the Bible writers did not mean what they said, it's time to stop and say, wait, 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 what are we doing here? Uh, if anything is clear, after we've looked at the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans, it is that the wrath of God is the problem. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has said, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And then he gives that long catalog of vices and sins, and he concludes here in chapter 3 by saying, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God is a God of love, but God is holy. 
God is a God who is holy, and he cannot tolerate sin. And so he is a God of wrath. His wrath is not like the wrath of man. It is not capricious. It is not sinful. It is a righteous, holy wrath that is revealed from heaven. Instead of stumbling at this concept, we should look at it as being precisely the category that is needed. There is the wrath of God against sin, against mankind. Something must be done. God cannot simply dismiss sin, for that would violate His justice and His righteousness. He cannot simply just forget about it. There must be something done that will satisfy the wrath of God, that will turn it away from us. So, propitiation means the turning away of wrath by an offering. Expiation means the cancellation of sin. And the confusion between the two can be avoided if you keep in mind that it is sins that are expiated. Offenses, trespasses. Sins are expiated. Wrath, or the person who is wrathful, is propitiated. Uh, one cannot expiate God. You can't cancel God. You, you can't just wipe Him out. You expiate sin. You cannot propitiate sin. You propitiate God's wrath, or God. So keep that in mind. God's wrath is a true wrath. It is not like the capricious anger of pagan deities or even of, of man himself. It is a, a righteous wrath. I, I read sometimes uh, in our society today that doesn't like this concept at all. And really no society has ever much liked it. But they, they'll say things like, you know, well, this idea of God raining down fire and brimstone like he did at Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that, you know, Jesus would never do that. You do realize that the Trinity is one. You can't separate them. Jesus rained down wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus Christ rained down wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. He is God. He is God the Son. And when it says that that God is a God of wrath, righteous, holy wrath. It's talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We may think that the wrath of God and the love of God are, in, are incompatible. They are not. The wrath of God is mentioned 585 times in the Old Testament. It is clearly uh, referred to many times in the New Testament. God's wrath is a strong character element. God hates sin, and he must punish it. The wrath of God is revealed from the opening chapters of the Bible all the way to the end, the final cataclysmic judgments that are recorded in the book of Revelation. And notice it is God himself who satisfies his own wrath. Propitiation means the turning of the, of the wrath of God aside. 
But it is never a human being that can appease divine wrath. But rather God himself satisfies that wrath through the death of his own son, Jesus Christ. In pagan rituals, sacrifices were made by people trying to placate God. In Christianity, it is never the human being who takes the initiative or makes the sacrifice. It is God himself, out of his great love for sinners, that provides a way for his wrath to be turned aside. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God placates his own wrath against sin so that his love may go out to save sinners. This is already clear in the Old Testament when the sacrifices that were made on the altars in the tabernacle and the temple were recognized not as human works, but as divine gifts. Leviticus chapter 17, God said, I have given it to you, the sacrificial blood he's talking about, to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. We see the wrath of God pictured in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. You remember when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he told him to build a portable tabernacle to house the Ark of the Covenant and be the focal point of Israel's worship. The tabernacle was an enclosure of skins that could be easily assembled and disassembled, and the, the children of Israel carried it with them everywhere that they went. And within that enclosure, consisting of an outer chamber that was called the holy place, and an inner chamber that was called the holy of holies, in the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant was placed. The ark was a gold-covered box that was about a yard long, and it contained the tablets of the law that Moses had received on Mount Sinai. You remember the first set were broken, but... Uh, they were done again, and they were placed there. And this box had a cover on it that was called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat at each end, facing one another, were statues of cherubim, mighty angels, whose wings stretched upward and forward, meeting directly over the ark. So in a symbolic way, God was said to dwell above the ark, between the, uh, the outstretched wings of the cherubim. As it stands, the ark is a picture of terrible judgment that was intended to produce fear in the heart of the worshiper, terror, because it disclosed to him his sin. What does God see when he looks down from heaven at the ark of the covenant? His perfect law, which man has broken. And because God is holy, he must punish the sin of a broken law. He must act in judgment. God cannot ignore sin. It is said in a court of law that if a guilty man goes free, the judge is condemned. God is the judge of all the earth. He will not be condemned. He will not act in a way that is unjust. But that's where the mercy seat comes in. One day of the year, on the day that the Jews called Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, 
the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people's sins, to make propitiation. The very Greek word was used to translate mercy seat. It's the same word for propitiation. Moments before, the priest had offered a sacrifice for his own sins. And then he carried the blood of the second animal into the Holy of Holies very carefully, lest he should violate a rule and be struck dead for his uh, ignorance or stupidity, I suppose, would be better because he knew better, couldn't be ignorant. And he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. So now God looks down from heaven, what does he see? The blood of an innocent victim. The blood that has been shed to make atonement for the soul. Not the law of God that man has broken, but he sees instead the blood of the victim. He sees that punishment has been meted out. Propitiation has been made. And his love goes out to save those who come to him, not on the basis of their own good works or their righteousness, but faith in that sacrifice. Now we know, of course, from the book of Hebrews, that the blood of goats and calves never really propitiated anybody's sin. That's what Paul means in this passage where he says uh, he has overlooked sins and his divine forbearance. He was waiting for the perfect sacrifice to be made that would propitiate his wrath and cancel sin. All of those animals slain on Jewish altars in that tabernacle and later in the temple pointed to the one sacrifice that would take away sin for all, Jesus Christ. Propitiation is made through the blood of Jesus Christ. There are not many places in the Bible where the concept of propitiation occurs, but there is one I think that is very important that is recorded in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus tells a parable about two men who come to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee the best of the best, the most religious people of their day. The other is a publican, a tax collector. We have a bad opinion of Pharisees today, and we use the word Pharisee to denigrate those who are holier than thou or something. But they were were very highly regarded by their contemporaries. They knew the Word of God, and they had in their own kind of twisted way a reverence for it. So the Pharisee stood up to pray, as everyone would have agreed was the right thing to do. In fact, if he had not stood up to pray, someone in charge would have said, come up here, Dr. Pharisee, and you pray for us. We want to hear you. Everyone be quiet, because the Pharisee is going to pray, and he knows how to do it. So he prayed about himself. And he said, God, I thank you that I am not at all like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get to the temple. I don't think the Pharisee was lying. He was telling the truth. He really 
thought he was better than everyone else. He wasn't like them. He was not a thief. He was not an adulterer. Uh, he, he did give every, a tenth of everything that he had to the temple. And moreover, I think everyone there would have concurred in that evaluation. He was an outstanding citizen. He was a credit to his community. If anyone could be accepted by God on the basis of his character and his good works, it would be this Pharisee. Then Jesus talks about the other man who was there, the tax collector. He was standing far off. He belonged over there, of course. He was uh, as an outcast. Many people regarded the tax collectors as no good, money-grubbing, cheating Roman collaborators. You know, I mean, how many people truly love IRS agents in our day? But it was worse than that day. And Jesus said to them, He would not even look up to heaven, but beat upon his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And why not? He was a sinner. He had a lot to be repentant about. It's hard to imagine a greater contrast than the contrast between these two men. As to occupation, noble versus base. As to bearing, proud versus shameful. As to self-evaluation, self-confident versus cringing. Yet when the Lord concluded his parable, he shocked his listeners when he said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God, declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. No dime store novel, no cinematic melodrama has ever had a more surprise ending than the ending of that parable. Must have shocked everybody. Everybody said, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. He must have got his words wrong. He surely meant that the Pharisee was justified, not the tax collector. The only differences between these two men was, number one, the tax collector knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was unworthy. He knew that unless God bestowed mercy upon him, he could never be justified. He could never be declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. The Pharisee did not know it. The Pharisee stood up and prayed. One translation says he prayed thus with himself. He did. He prayed with himself. He got up basically and said, God, boy, I know you're proud of me. I'm better than everybody here. I mean, nobody, I mean, nobody here are as good as I am, especially this rotten tax collector, you know. Number two, the tax collector approached God not on the basis of his good works, which he did not have, but rather he approached God on the basis of the provision that God had made for him symbolized in the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant and the propitiation that took place there. Literally, literally, the tax collector's prayer was, God, be mercy seated to me, a sinner. 
be propitiated. The prayer of, of this publican is, is worth exploring. It's one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. It's only seven words in English. It's only six words in the Greek. But it is profound. Look at, look at the beginning and the end. The first word is God. The last word is sinner. Oh, that's already great. God, sinner. They, they show what results when a person actually becomes aware of the one true God and of their condition before Him. When anyone becomes conscious of God, he or she does not proceed in their own supposed righteousness as the Pharisee did. That's how we know the Pharisee didn't know God. He stood up and told God what a great guy he was and how proud God ought to be of him. Rather, when a person becomes conscious of God, they become aware of their own sin. It's an interesting parallel that the more you are aware of God, the more you know of God, the more you study theology, the more you are aware of your own sin and how horrible it is. That's why grace is so amazing, because sin is so horrible. Not your sin, I'm talking about my sin. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. No, that saved a wretch like me. I'm the wretch. I'm the wretch. Cowper said, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And as he originally wrote it, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. The tax collector came to God as a sinner who needed mercy, who needed forgiveness. The dying thief, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Nothing more. He told the other thief, don't you fear God? We deserve what we're getting, but this man has done nothing wrong. The tax collector did not only know God and know himself of a sinner, which is the starting point of all religion. He also knew the heart of the gospel. He understood propitiation. He understood that the death of an innocent victim was required to appease, to turn aside, turn away the wrath of a holy God. So actually, though the prayer sounds like it, he's not really pleading for mercy. He's coming to God on the basis of the mercy that's already been provided. God be mercy seated to me. He was saying, treat me on the basis of the blood that's sprinkled on that mercy seat. Treat me on that basis. That's why we need to preserve this great word, propitiation. Can't be saved without propitiation. The wrath of God must be turned aside. And God has shown how it is to be turned aside. We are sinners. We have offended God. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against us. God is holy. He can't just forget about it. What does he do? He comes to earth, born of a virgin. He lives a sinless life. And he goes to a cross and dies in the place of sinners. That's the gospel. 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins to turn away the wrath of God so that God can be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. God can remain just. He is holy. His wrath is satisfied. His wrath is turned aside because he poured it out on Jesus Christ on the cross. We believe that and we receive the righteousness of Christ. All of our sins are imputed to Christ. All of his righteousness imputed to us. We receive that which we do not deserve. Mercy. The Pharisee stood up before God and basically said, God, give me what I deserve. Whoa. When I stand before the great God of heaven, the last thing in eternity I want is justice. I want mercy. I want mercy. Don't, don't give me what I deserve because what I deserve is eternal condemnation. What I deserve is hell forever. What I have is eternal life. Not because of anything that I have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Receive him, believe on him, and the wrath of God is propitiated. Turned aside and turned away. No one gets to heaven without praying a prayer similar to that of that tax collector. Be mercy seated to me. Believing that only in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is salvation possible. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God,